HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We head back to our hometown today to chat with Amanda Schulman, who's Her Place Supper Club in Philadelphia is one of our favorite new restaurant discoveries. We chat about her early Shabbat dinners at home, her grandma's legendary baked salami, and how she went from reading Craig LeBond's reviews to her journey to opening up her own place in the city of brotherly love. We're so excited. It's a great conversation, and we cannot wait to check it out the second we get back to Philly. If you live in Philadelphia or you're in New York and the East Coast, reservations open up at 6 p.m. Every Sunday night, Monday, no reservations. Walk in. New menus every two weeks. Go check it out. It's very, very, very delicious and inspiring. And then we head to the archives. Matt Costas is down with us. Rips a little bit of California dreamy vibe music. Perfect for a Sunday or whenever you're listening to Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. She's going out tonight. Aquarium friends amongst the buffoons and the bogots. She's strung out again. She knows not what she does, she knows not how she feels. She don't know if she's living or dying. Her bucket's full of pills, and she's colder than the coast of Maine. Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cut you like she cut me Sharon, and send you raging on the sea Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon, I seen you make arrangements 
with all the lawyers at the bar I know you're going through those changes Yeah, I know you're going through those changes And I've seen you going through those changes Gone, gone, gone And still your daddy pays your rent She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels She don't know if she's living or dying Her pocket's full of pills And she's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cut you like she cut me Sharon, inside your region of mercy Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon. Amanda, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, focusing on L.A., New York, but have such a soft spot for Philadelphia because that's where I'm from. Um, and it's always great to meet another person who's from Philly, another member of the tribe who's also into food. And I feel like uh, whenever you come across these ty- people in the world, just an instant connection. Totally. Philly does that. Automatic connection. Um, so, you know, for those who may not be as familiar with the Philly scene, the dining scene, what's the current state of it right now? Um, how has it bounced back? You know, what's the summer been like? Um, you know, are diners coming out? What are people eating? Honestly, Philly feels very alive. I will say I try and keep up with everything that's going on, but it's hard to get outside of my own four walls sometimes. Um, but I mean, it feels like people are eating out with a vengeance sometimes for just the amount of time lost, but the dining mm. thing's happening. There's a lot of small things opening up, which really is exciting. And it seems like a really exciting time to be here. And I'm super grateful to be a part of it, but it, there's also so much opportunity, which makes it even more exciting. Um, because I think we have some amazing things, but there's definitely room for more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing I've always loved about the Philadelphia dining scene is that it's, there's always another pocket. There's always a different uh, area. There's more opportunity to maybe take a experiment or risk or try something new. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could have tried what I did here in most cities. So I think um, the opportunities, you know, everything's expensive, but it's definitely a little more doable here. And because of that, you get people trying and doing more interesting things. Yeah. Um, I want to go back a little bit because, you know, reading about you and the, and the, and her supper club, what I came across is that food has always been a big central part of your life, especially with family and Shabbat dinners. Um, why do you think that food has just been so core to who you are? Honestly, food is 
about bringing people together. And it was like the communication medium for my family. You know, every Jewish holiday is about eating. We were home for dinner, like probably six nights a week. My mom is a great cook. And I mean, everything revolved around the kitchen. Like that's where we did our homework before we ate every meal. And when that is the center of a household, it definitely is ingrained within you that kind of everything revolves around food. Um, Every, it's just like the place where everything always kind of came together and it's synonymous with happiness and laughter and just a good time. You know, I, I had a similar experience growing up where the kitchen was the center of the house. The, the, the dining table was for either eating or reading or homework or things like that. And so was hosting and having people in the house and, and making sure that you had an open home. There's always food. But I didn't always find that at other people's homes. Did you find a similar experience where what you took for granted at a home of this hosting and feeding and this centralized kitchen idea was unique to to where you grew up? Or did you find it in other, other mean, friends' homes? I don't think I realized how unique it was. I definitely had friends that ate dinner at home like we did, but I mean... I'm one of four and there was always so much going on and everyone was playing sports and going to this after school activity. And it was such a rare opportunity when you, when looking back that we were all home for dinner Monday through Thursday and usually Saturday or Sunday, just sitting there and taking the time to like stop our day, all come together and eat and talk about what we did that day. Cell phones, like obviously we have them, but that wasn't as big of a thing back then. Um, but that was definitely not the norm. It's pretty rare that everybody takes the time to do that. And I mean, my mom cooked five days a week on top of having a job. So it was pretty incredible that she did that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I, now that I'm a parent myself, uh, really appreciated my mom cooking five days a week on top of a job and being like, what a crazy, so crazy. Um, yeah, and, and like, uh, back then you're just like, oh, this is like, this is what mom, this is what mom does. Like, you know, she goes and works, then she comes home. And I took over in high school. I cooked dinner probably four days a week, um, which is kind of how I started getting into the kitchen. Uh, but just having that opportunity to kind of like play around and knowing I had a captive audience every night at six o'clock. <laughs> when um, you started cooking, was it a relief from your mom or was it a watchful eye? Was it uh this is not how we do it in this household or did she give you some creative culinary freedom? No, she totally, you know, try things, whatever you want to do. And I was like reading cookbooks in history class and I was on food 52 all the time and reading actually with Epicurious segments was the one that was, even my friends and I would do this. My, we would like, be in history class looking up Julia Child's beef bourguignon and what kind of cookies we are going to make on Epicurious this weekend. Like, it, I had a lot of freedom to kind of explore. And I would, I remember before I'd go to field hockey practice, I'd text my mom a grocery list, like, I'm going to make this tonight. And uh, she was super supportive. But I mean, in a family of six, there's some picky eaters. So you have to make a couple of different things to make everybody happy. Yeah, and I'm sure she was like, great. I've been cooking dinner for uh, a 12 years plus. Yeah. Have at it. Uh-huh. Have at it. Yeah, go for it and just clean up. And I was not good at the clean up part at first. 
Oh, no. I, you got to clean as you go. That's the number one rule my mom taught me. I've, clean as I've you go. Definitely gotten better. But there'd be like chocolate on the fridge, flour on places that made no sense. But, you know, that part's always a work in progress. Um, you also said that your grandma was a big influence on the food that you make. Uh, what type of cooking did she did? She passed a couple of years ago, but she would make things that are just like so synonymous with tradition and my whole family. Uh, she would make this baked salami, literally a Jewish kosher salami, that she would hassle back like a potato and cover in a mix of Dijon, brown sugar, and mustard, and then bake it until it's really crispy. And it's like the it's it's basically a a hot dog in a toaster oven. But it's unbelievable and so good. And she had a few iconic dishes like that. But it's just like, oh, my God. And you see everyone's face light up when that's on the table. And it just shows you the power of, like, what a food memory is. I mean, the, the that's another thing I think realizing is that dishes like that that were so appreciated and considered tradition in, in our house – like my grandmother would make cholent and and fried veal and things like that. You wouldn't find other people's homes. No. And that's part of the beauty. Like who's eating like oven fried salami with brown sugar and mustard? Nobody. So nobody. It makes it but it's all comfort food and it's so special. It's so great. Um, so that stuff's the most powerful. What makes it powerful for you? The, like the spirit it evokes we make it every holiday even though she's no longer here and you just like see people light up when it's on the table so you're cooking in high school and um did you feel the pull of getting into the dining scene did you want to go to college like at what point did you start to think about food being something more than just a family tradition or something that you love doing for friends? Um, honestly, I went to school to study political science, languages, and journalism, and I wanted to work for the UN. So wow. I always cooked on the side, and I just really never thought about going into restaurants because as soon as you tell somebody you want to cook, the first thing they say is, don't go into restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I fought that for a bit and then I got to school and I cooked for everybody and it just was what I love to do. I was doing it all the time. I would do my homework in two days and just cook the rest of the time. And I took a food writing class and I would use it as an excuse to get into kitchens in Philly mm. and interview chefs. So I was I interviewing people whose restaurants I love to go to. You know, I was a college kid. It wasn't like I was going out all the time, but I was reading every review that Craig LeBan was writing and I was trying to stay on the scene. Mm-hmm. So I would pick places that I wanted to eat and interview people. And I ended up interviewing Mark Vetri's dad for mm. a piece on his meatballs. And I thought I was just going to like go do the interview when I get there. And he hands me a chef coat and he's like, we're making staff meal. And I started working there the next week. And that kind of completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I, never left restaurants. Do you feel that that can still happen in today's? A hundred percent. I was actually talking to this guest last night at the restaurant. Um, she was sitting right in front of me and she was like, I want to go to culinary school. I like work in tech. Mm. And I was like, 
honestly, like just start, just go to a restaurant. Everybody needs help. Just start working and just, if you love it, you'll just fall into it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think it can still happen. Totally. I mean, the the need for good, dedicated, passionate labor in back of house has never been higher right now. No, a hundred, and that's what I was telling her. I was like, people are so excited. People are going to be so excited to have you before you even walk in the door. Like, you have no idea what an upper hand you have as like a person that's smart and willing and really excited to learn. And I mean, I look at my own staff and. Most people do not have, I, no one who works for me has ever went to culinary school. I have one line cook who is an engineer who graduated from Haverford. And my sous chef has a degree in textural design and worked at Lily Pulitzer. Um, oh so it's kind of a hodgepodge um, of different people. And I feel really lucky. It's amazing. But um, that's to say, um, there's a million paths. There's a million paths. And I think that, um, that used to be the case. I think that was the case. And then, then there was this idea that you have to do this certain type of training and run a restaurant a certain way and go to culinary school. And then everything broke apart again and said, no, there is, there's a certain skill set that you need and you need to learn the fundamentals, but it's not, um, you don't need to shell out 50, 60, $70,000 over a couple of years to go yeah. get into the restaurant. No, a hundred percent. But I remember being in school and it's so funny now cause I'm on this side, but the barrier to entry seems so high when you don't mm-hmm. know anybody in restaurants. It felt like a foreign concept, you know, like I knew people who worked all the adults in my life and all the people I grew up with, like did different jobs. Like I didn't know anybody that worked in restaurants. So the barrier to entry seems so high when in reality, it's really just an ask and, and a really up. low barrier to entry, <laughs> like really? a, not a gate. There's no barrier. It's like a, a welcome home sign. Yeah. 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 Welcome home. Can you get Literally. in the mix with us in yeah, like please. two hours? Cause please, please um, Wash all right, help. let's take a quick musical break. And then I want to get into the start of her supper club uh, as a dorm pop-up. And then uh, as a a more permanent fixture in the Philadelphia dining scene, um, we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. I'm 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Amanda Schulman of Her Supper Club chatting with us. Breaking news, the terrine is not ready, so that means we have a few more minutes to, to catch up and, um, and and hear more about your story. So, look, I it's always interesting to find the turning points, you know. So you're you're making family meal for, for Vetri, and you've cooked for your family, and you're cooking for your friends, but that is a, still a far cry away from saying you're going to do something that's a little bit more formalized. What made you want to make the jump for launching a supper club out of your dorm apartment in college? Uh, well, after I interviewed Betri's dad at a meet, I started working there twice a week. And you just get addicted to restaurants. It's addicting. It's exciting. Everything else seems slow. I worked in some test kitchens for websites. I did some like food styling. And I, I was trying to like give myself the array of options that wasn't restaurants um, just because people have been telling me to avoid them my whole life. And I tried food styling and recipe testing and food writing and all these things. And everything was like 10 times slower than restaurants. And they were so much more fun. So I graduated college and I got hired at Vetri and I was there for two and a half years. And then I moved around a lot, working in different restaurants um, in a couple of different states and countries. And when I ended up back in New York working at Mama Fugu Co., I started a supper club out of my apartment called Her Place. But this was actually the second iteration because when I was in college to practice cooking, when I wasn't at a meet, I would make my Facebook status, five courses, $30, message me if you want to come. And I would get a group of people together um, from all over campus. Uh, you know what? It was it was a lot of pasta. I had a pasta <laughs> machine. But sometimes, I mean, I made no money. I made enough money to go buy like a beer. But, sure, 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 um, sure, sure. I went to the Italian market and picked up a whole pig and cooked five courses of pig once. It was like the whole thing out was... Of your, I'm sorry, out, out of your my, dorm? Out of my off-campus apartment that I shared with seven other girls, and they were going to be so mad if I had a whole pig in the fridge that I actually kept it in my friend's frat house basement. Um, oh, my because, God. Uh, these girls would have freaked out. Um, uh, so <laughs> that was when I kind of was like, okay, this is what I want to do. It was really just cooking, and I tell everyone who asked me this, any line cooks, like, how do you get where you are? Like, what do you do? Just cook, literally yeah. just cook as much as you can. And a lot of people don't do that today. A lot of people go to work and work is so tiring. Cooking is a hard job. When you leave there, you're exhausted. But if you really love it and you are so in and you are cooking on the weekends, you're trying to feed everybody, you know, and then the people you don't know. And that's how you figure out what your style is. And, um, that's, that really helped me was just cooking all the time. So when you're working at all these other places, Amis and Momofuku, and I know that you did a, a stint at Joe Beef, was the supper club always in the back of your mind? Were you just in some ways collecting different approaches and techniques and, and thought starters um, that you were going to eventually just filter through your own expression? 
I mean, yeah, I knew I wanted a restaurant and everything felt like I was at each job for a reason to kind of like learn a specific thing or just get better overall better. Um, but her place really took shape when I was in New York and we were doing it once every two weeks and inviting complete strangers to my 500 square foot studio. And I was cooking. And when I had, we had somehow it started as an email blast to 50 people. And we have a list of over 600 strangers emails. And we were like, okay, we have something here. And I always thought about somehow making that concept a restaurant. And it was, it just didn't take shape until um, a couple years later. So, you know, you're in New York and you're doing this, um, but you had mentioned at the top of the show that the Philadelphia dining scene just offers different opportunities. Did you know that you always wanted to go back to the city to start this or was no. there something? Not no. at all. I was living in oh. Montreal. I was living Shout in Montreal out. when the pandemic, yeah, Montreal, best place in the world. When the pandemic yep. hit, I was working at Joby and I was like, okay, I feel like whatever I do next, like I might be ready for my own thing. And mm. I actually started looking at places in New York and I was so close to signing a couple months weeks in New York the month before the pandemic hit. It's like a summer thing, which is funny because that's how this ended up happening. But the rent prices in New York were so offensive that it just <laughs> didn't feel fun anymore. It didn't feel fun. It didn't feel mm. fun. I felt like too much pressure. The area I wanted to be in, I was looking at rents that were $30,000. And I was like, I I don't think I'm going to be able to wake up knowing I have $30,000 hanging over me before yeah. I turn the lights on, before I yeah. have a person in here besides myself. Like It was just, the stakes felt too intense. Um. So then I started looking in Philly and I was like, you know what? This makes more sense here. This is kind of where I came up. Like I have a great group of friends there. I have a really awesome restaurant community. And so I just moved back and started looking at spaces and I had a lot of things fall through. Sure. And a lot of, a lot of things not work out. And then, and also this was still in the pandemic. So everything was like very weird and unknown and people would say they wanted to sell. And the next day you, give them an LOI and they're like, never mind. And, um, somebody sold, showed me an old, an old pizza shop and I wrote mm. them a business plan for doing prepared foods and picnic baskets out of it. Cause I had been selling prepared foods illegally out of my apartment and nice. they were like, okay, sure. You can take it for two months and we'll see what happens. And the week before we opened, all restrictions were lifted and I was like, okay, I'll just cook dinner instead because that's what I like to do anyways and we that's been it we never left I mean that's amazing kismet it, is what I believe they, they call that it's definitely definitely kismet and I think timing is everything everything sure. had been dark for so long nothing had opened in a while so people were excited about it but mm. I also think and like some of the sometimes you do stuff and you don't realize what it is until you reflect and like it's really rare that you get such an opportunity to do like something so bare bones and basic, but that almost makes it more pure and real. Like there were no frills. This place was really fucking ugly. Oh, am I allowed to curse? <laughs> oh yeah, it's fine. Okay. This was really fucking ugly. The tiles were disgusting. <laughs> it looked like the floors of a bad 
Bahama resort and it did not matter and no one gave a shit. And that also was, it, that made me think too. I was like, you know, you always dream of having like a really pretty fancy restaurant and I still do, but this was like about the food, the vibe and just like cooking food and like making something special that night and like pouring every ounce of everything you had into it. And it was so like raw effort and it was special. It is special. I mean, and I, everything I've seen, everything I've read, everyone's reaction to it, that it is special. And I think that has been one of the silver linings of the pandemic and the restaurant industry is that just surviving, just opening the doors every week, just creating a space is enough of a success that people aren't going to come after you and say, the tiles are ugly, or this isn't how we do it, or this is, you can't run a restaurant this way. Because what the pandemic showed is that like, one, it wasn't working. And two, what was working also could be very toxic. And, you know, the power balances could be completely off. And so, you know, you, you in many ways have reshaped a concept of a way that a restaurant can, can run. What are you hoping to prove out with this model beyond just maybe aesthetically it doesn't look like a restaurant, but maybe from a structural point? I will say it looks like a restaurant now. We did a renovation <laughs> in the spring because it, and that gets to two points because you're right. It totally is like no one really cares, but the person who cared was me. And after coming here eight months every day and wanting to throw up on the floor, I yeah. did, we redid the floors, we like painted and put up art and that was for nobody else but myself. Of course, because um, you, you're seeing those but, floors every day. Because I you're see like, floors, and people are like, "Oh, it's so cool and charming because it's ugly." I was like, "Okay, I'm glad you think so," but <laughs> I am like, I need to make this look a little more like what I envisioned, and it's still pretty yeah. basic. Um, sorry, what was the, what was the question? What is the the model? Oh no, just no, just having a new model, a new structure of just approach to it. You know, you have different hours, your menu changes, yeah. you empower your employees. Like there's a lot of things that you're doing that are purposeful that, you know, it just shows that a restaurant can be run a different way. It's definitely different. We are not open on the weekends. We're open primarily Tuesday through Friday. We're trying a little Monday experiment of walk-ins this month, but I have worked my whole adult life in kitchens. I've missed every birthday party, every wedding, mm -hmm. every everything. Mm -hmm. And most of my friends are not in the industry and none of my family's in the industry. And I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't want anyone to feel bad about having like asked off to go to a wedding or birthday party. And it was just like, I mean, we get better people on the weekdays anyways, to be honest. There's a completely different type of diner on a Tuesday than there is a Saturday. Because they want it. Like, they're they like, want it. let's and go fun. out. And they come, yeah, exactly. It's just different. And the weekends are for the birds. And you know what? I get it because that's when most people have off. But for us, it works. And now we have off on the weekends, which, which is so weird. I just made a reservation at a restaurant on Saturday night. I was like, this is so weird like to pick a Saturday night. Um, but that's different. We change the menu every two weeks. And we really mm. do no substitutions. And that is definitely different. And we, I'm the first to say, we are just not accommodating. We're not accommodating. And I, I did love a quote you said about 
we don't do accommodations, but we make so much food, just eat more of something else, which is like a hundred percent. Well, it's just like, I, I, I always <laughs> describe it as like, so okay, good. Darren, you're invited to your yeah. mom's best friend's house for dinner, right? Yeah. Yep. She yes. makes, I, she makes a spread. She makes a spread. You hate salmon. The main course is salmon. You're going to be fine. There's potatoes, there's salad, yep. there's bread, there were hors d'oeuvres. You're, you're okay. Like you're going to be okay. And yeah, I mean, maybe salmon, next time you go no back, thanks. there's lamb chops. Like, right. It, 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 this is not for everyone. And I know that. But even if it's not everything for you, something will be for you. And if it's not, then wait for a menu that is. But you're also talking about trust because in some ways it's about curation and relationship building that you're just going to go in and you're like, I will have a good time. I will enjoy all or some of the food, but I'm just putting my trust into to this community that I'm, I'm being welcomed into and we'll see what happens. Totally. And I think that's also what's cool about tasting menus is it's like, I, I'm one of those diners. I love eating a la carte because I like to pick and choose and whatever. But Same. There is something special about a tasting menu because I'm picking what I want you to eat and we are putting all of our effort into those eight dishes. It's not like one gets left behind because every single person is getting those eight things. So all of our effort is going into making sure that those are the best ones. Yeah. Yes. No, I agree. And also, you know, people may sometimes forget about Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, especially is proximity to New Jersey. Tons of great produce, tons of great uh, meat and cheese, and and even local wines now and beers and things like that. Like it's a real bounty in the Keystone State. Totally, there's so much here. It's overwhelming um, in a good way. There's so much here that it's overwhelming. But I mean, we're also super small, so we can work with really small farmers and take five of something and ten of something and. You know, we work pretty closely with Primal Supply when we do meat. So we get 10 pork chops, 10 copas, 10 short loins, and it keeps it interesting. It keeps it fun. But it's also like, it is so hard to be creative. Creativity is a muscle that needs flexing and like pushing yourself to come up with new dishes every week. Sometimes I want to punch myself in the face. It's really (laughs) hard. And I'm like, why do I do this? And then we get through it and we make beautiful things. Well, especially when you know that if you did... um roast chicken on Friday nights uh, yeah. with a Shabbat-inspired dinner, you would never have to change the menu. It would just crush no. every weekend. It's, it's, it's hard. Sometimes the menu changes are, I mean, they're always stressful, but it's, it, it's a concept that, you know, we, we get some people that actually come in every two weeks. We actually get people mm. that come in every two weeks I and eat it. every single menu. But for the most part, it, most people are come. A lot of people aren't coming every two weeks, so it's not really for the people. It's really for us who's cooking. Um, yeah, because it keeps so, it stimulating and entertaining yeah, and challenging. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we touched on that beyond the food and beyond the different approach you have to running a restaurant. You've also been using uh, her supper club as a bit of um, a megaphone and a place to talk about social issues, which, you know, especially given the thin margins and everything like that, like the fact that you're able to do fundraisers for, you know, Ukraine or in response to Roe v. Wade being struck down, um, you're doing a lot of good work. Why is that important to you? How do you make it work? How does the community respond 
to you know the the social issues that you're you're getting behind yeah um i grew up in a family that was really really passionate about doing charity work and my parents instilled it into us very very early on every christmas we were at a um soup kitchen every thanksgiving we were making um meals for homeless people we were buying presents on the holidays for those less fortunate and it was just something i grew up with and with regard to the work that we do here i mean i just feel like i feel a social responsibility to use this space for something that helps the community we cook with the sunday love project at least twice a month making meals for the homeless or we're doing lunches for kids summer camp we had 50 picked up this morning and we did that fundraiser for the Roe v. Wade situation. And we're working, we have a big sale on Sunday. And there, I mean, there's a lot going on and it just feels like it's part of the job. Like it, it feels, it, it doesn't really feel like an option, but it's also like at this point, we are so lucky to have a pretty wide net and reach that we have to use it for something important. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just cooking dinner. But if we can just cook dinner and then do other amazing things that help people and the community at large or right here in Philly, then that's really important. That's like there's a huge social component involved in restaurants. And it's like, you know, people pay to eat here every night. But like, what do we do with that? And who do we want to feed? And sorry, that was like a lot of rambling. Long story short, we have a platform and I feel responsibility to use it. No, I love it. And I think that it's really important. I think that's what people are looking for as well. Um, When they go to eat, it's like no longer just um, about the food, but it's about the people and the messaging and sort of like, you know, look, I just, I find myself as well going back to the same half a dozen restaurants now, even though living in Los Angeles, I could eat at a different restaurant every night. And at some point you just go like, this is in many ways, like this is my band. This is, this is who I listen to. Like, this is my restaurant. This is who I want to give money to, especially knowing um, that that money counts even more now. Like it's really tough to be a restaurant. And so it's like, I'm going to give you my money here. I'm going to support you. And here it's a little unique because there are no walls. It's the kitchen like it's not even open it's more than open you're in the kitchen when you're sitting in here and I'm talking you through every course and it's like super interactive it really feels like you're in my house and I think because of that people really feel a connection with us when they come here and we really feel like we get to know our guests and when people come here to support us they're not just supporting us they're supporting everything that we are for and believe in and you know, when you go and you make a political statement, like stuff's going to happen. Like I got hate mail. Like I got some crazy emails when I was like doing the fundraiser for the national network of abortion funds, like insane emails. And you know what? That's part of the price. Like that's going to happen. And I was, people say not to bring politics into your business. And I totally understand, but like sometimes you just like the line is blurred. If your business is you, if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, like yeah. I am the no, business. No, totally. Like, how do I you not bring politics into this? Like it affects also, me. It affects everybody who works here. 
But also, you know, you have 24 seats and you're open Tuesday through Friday. You're already serving a, a specific crowd who gets what you're doing and adding politics and things like that to that is like, look, you're either you're either going to get it and you're in or you're going to come you're once. In or you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. And we so, thank you for the one time you come. And sure. Wish you well. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. It was obvious from the jump when you walked in the door, this was not for you, but we got through it. And, um, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe don't. It. I know the music's really loud and maybe don't come back and that's okay. What are you playing uh, for dinner? What's the soundtrack? Oh my God. We have some really good playlists. I will say two of them are made by my best friend who helped me open. And then I have been told I have the worst taste in music my entire sure. life. And now I have a playlist and it's really, it's hitting. So I feel like I'm uh, renewing myself, but you know, it's a lot of, it's everything from Biggie to Shania Twain to Elton John to Bare Naked Ladies. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. I love it. So listen, uh, before we go, I want to ask sort of one full circle question. You mentioned that you got into the Philadelphia restaurant scene by reading Craig LeBond's review and he wrote one on you. He came and he ate multiple times at her supper club. What was that like? to go from reading and that being your entry point to him not only eating your food, but I mean, an extremely favorable, he got it, he's in type of review. Yeah, it, I mean, really surreal. I remember the day the review came out, I was in a meeting with an architect and my manager at the time, Steve and I were in the meeting and the review had been posted when we were in there. And we came wow. out and I had no idea. and. I found out because Vetri texted me being like, you're Shout out. Craig LeBend. Like he loves you. Like he's uh, he's in. I was like, what? And I read the review and I read it out loud when we were walking on the street and just started crying. Um, because it was so nice. And for somebody to capture what it was so well that we were doing, like, I feel like he just, it, it, you just said it, like he got it. And to go from reading his reviews as a college student to like having a restaurant and him coming yeah. here and eating and then writing one, like that was so crazy. It was so surreal. It was like our first real review. And you know, when I'm having a bad day, sometimes I'll read it and I'll be like, okay, like I know I we're doing that. something. I know we're doing something important here. That's just more than cooking. Um, and it feels good to know that it's obvious to some people because sometimes mm. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. This is not easy. Really this is really hard. And when the lights are all out and I have no dishwasher and we're short staffed and the fish doesn't show up, then I remember like it's gonna be okay. And we're still we're doing something. So Oh, that's beautiful. How, how proud were your parents? Oh my God. So proud. Are you ready for this? My dad frames everything. He's like that guy that takes pictures on his iPhone and then blows them up at Costco and frames them and not like little blowups. Like they're like five I love it. by four oh, yeah. of my dogs, like blown up in the house. So he made me this massive collage when it came out in print and it's so hilarious. It's like kind of a weird little shrine for myself. It's like four feet by four feet of the entire review printed out on bright pink paper um, mm. and frame. So they were very proud. Um, Chef's kiss right there. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, well, Amanda, congratulations. I can't wait to come in when I'm back home visiting my parents. Uh, if people want to check out the restaurant or follow along on Instagram, where can they go? They can go to our Instagram is her place after club. And our website is herplacephilly.com. We are releasing reservations Sunday night at six for a new menu. And we would love to have you guys in or see you on Monday for no reservations at five o'clock. Oh, I love it. Uh, well, Amanda, thank you again. Here's another song from the archives and then a live performance from the archives on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. I couldn't help from noticing you across the bar. Hello, I'm running, I'm falling apart. Do you want me back? Like I want you. You said I'm Edith and I've always been a mess Well nice to meet you, maybe we'll undress But we could just slide down We both could use the rest So I hold on, I hold on to a dim-wit cigarette, and I take a deep breath, cause I to greatness when I laid within your grassy realm crawled across the floor to a patched up helm your hips the balmy swell in porno And I said, hey, would you want to join the loner metal band? And you said, maybe we could just hold hands. Well, if that's the only place they'd land, I'd die a happy So I hold on, I hold on to a dim-wit cigarette, and I take a deep breath, cause I I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. 
HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Record Studios in gorgeous Silver Lake. It's always gorgeous because we're in California and we have one of California's born and bred, Matt Costa. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Uh, raised here, lived here, mm-hmm. never leaving. Um, I, I've left, I've, I've moved to other places, but I was born actually right down the street at what's the Dream Center there off the 101 in Rampart. Were you born in the Dream Center? I was born in the Dream Center, yeah. Really? Yeah. Was your family part of the Dream Center? Uh, no, at the time it was a, it was a hospital, like a uh, normal hospital. I don't know, I don't know what the Dream Center is now, but at the time it was a, yeah. it was called like Mary Queen of the Angels Hospital. For those who don't know the Dream Center is, it is a nebulous sort of place where, uh, groups of men in black t-shirts will walk around and clean up Silver Lake. <laughs> okay, But yeah. I don't know what else they do. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so born and bred L.A. Uh, yeah. Do you find that like being from L.A., living in L.A. has influenced your entire uh, music career writing approach to being an artist? Um, well, I mean, I grew up in Orange County, so Huntington Beach and, mm-hmm. and that area. So, you know, just outside of it. And... Uh, but yeah, I think just living in California in general, especially on this record, it's been um, 
you know, with geographically and those things have, um, it's come out. And I grew up skateboarding and stuff too. And so just being here um, in one of the meccas for skateboarding, uh, that influenced my music a lot too, just the music and videos and stuff. What about the videos? What about the visual artistic of skateboarding videos? Because this is, would you like, what, 90s skateboarding videos? Yeah. So, and what do you bring to that and that aesthetic? Because that's a very, like, OC skate videos are a very niche type of uh, approach to making art. Yeah. I mean, because of that, it was like, there was a lot, though. You know, there was a lot of the kind of, when you, I would watch, like, girl skate videos and stuff like that, mm. whether SF and yeah, also, yeah. and also in, um, LA here and and all the world industries and blind videos and stuff like that whether it's gay LA a lot and also the music in those was really cool I got turned on to like I mean that was the first time I remember like you had to hear stuff on the radio and things like that but especially like in my parents car or something but then I listened to it was like Van Morrison's song Caravan in oh, FTC yeah. video and I thought all of a sudden Van Morrison was cool you know right it's uh I felt like that those 90s skate videos were such a great postmodern approach to making art because you would have these like amazing songs but when these like young kids just ripping yeah and sometimes it would just create this whole new type of of like piece to enjoy yeah yeah totally and to show it i guess as an artist would show that sort of you could bring in all influences to what you wanted to create without having to feel that like you had to leave stuff off the table because it wasn't cool or not cool yeah yeah that's i mean it just it just was you know there was all you know obviously there's all sorts of stuff there's you know, obviously, like there was Misfits and Danzig and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, stuff too. yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. I mean, which I like, I listen to that as well. But yeah. then there was also there was a lot of hip hop and soul, and then there was a lot of the classic stuff. And and um, yeah, it just it didn't really it didn't really matter so when it was in there, and then it was associated with the visual. And then it was all then I was then I was hooked, you know. So you started getting it. When did you first start writing music? I know you've been doing professionally off and on for about I mean not off and on but on for about fifteen years. But yeah. when did you start to dabble? Younger when you were skateboarding or when you were a little bit older? Yeah, no, I just play I just played music then. I didn't yeah. and I didn't really play that often. I just you know, I just played guitar and a little bit and trumpet and stuff like that in school band. But when I was nineteen or so is when I started is when I started uh trying to write just like really digging into songs more, like studying whatever, just like learning whole songs and thinking about lyrics and those kind of things. Was there a shift? Is there always, you know, is there, was there a, uh, do you remember a moment when you went, I'm going to go after this as something I want to do with my life or was it just a natural progression? Yeah, it was just a natural progression for me. I mean, I, d I was, I broke my leg skateboarding really bad mm. and a lot of my friends at the time, you know, were all getting sponsored and, you know, they were all kind of, some of them were already going pro and things like that. And um, then that's what I wanted to do. But then I broke my leg and I thought I'd be back in like three months or something and keep going. But then it ended up being about a year and two years. And by the end of that, I like I really had to train myself to walk again. And so, uh, so riding a skateboard, going down big handrails and stuff like that and doing the things that I wanted to do seemed really out of the question, at least for the time being. And during those two and two years and three years of like basically recovery, and still even now it's not fully back. I guess I could have done better physical therapy and things, yeah. but um, the uh, that's when I started writing songs. And then within four years, and I kind of started doing shows and had some people who were like, you know, I, I just had released some things and people were, you know, excited about it. Friends of mine, and then just I just kind of kept going with that. But it never was like I want to do this for a career. It was more just sort of like, 
I like I like music and I just want to try it out. I mean, seeing how you've had a pretty pretty good run as a musician. Yeah. Do you find that moment where your life sort of diverged with that accident as something that you look back on like this I'm happy this happened now or do you see it as something where you're like you found a way to channel like what happened to you into something that making what your life is today? Yeah, I think all that stuff, the development when I was a kid to skateboarding is just like just shifted into the shifted into songwriting. Same sort of discipline and same sort of It's a lot of discipline. Like getting up, doing that trick over and over and yeah, over yeah. again. So applying that to music is a great way to be like, I wanna get this chord, I wanna hit this timing, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think also too, but there's things that I did want to like um that I did want to do different. Cause I remember that when I was young it was all just like muscle muscling things and going, going, going. Mm-hmm. And and then when I when I started writing music, then I realized that you know, you can sit and learn, you know, and I still do. You'll learn scales and you got to learn all the, the kind of fundamentals of it. Sure. Um, but I realized that, you know, not, not you know, not muscling. You can't, you know, you can muscle a, a guitar part or a song or something like that. <laughs> right. But you have to like, it gets more, you know, introspective and you have to be more thoughtful with it. And that's when the best stuff comes out. So when skateboarding, I did that. I saw some people who put that approach in skateboarding. And they were always better, you know. And right. then it, it took me to like stepping away from it to see that. And then I started applying that to my, or I've always tried to apply that to my music because, um, because I, I just, I just know that it makes, at least I think it makes for better, better, um, better art. Well, speaking of better art, let's hear a song. All right, I'll try. I'll try to play a. I'll try to play a good one here. Oh, you're gonna play a great one. Uh, what do you got for us? Uh, let's see here. This one. It's a song called Pacific Grove, and I found this drum machine here, so I figured I'd use it. Awesome. I know you've been away for a long time. Feels like ten years or more. You got me to thinking I shouldn't have said all those things I regret even more now. Times I'm living for the past Hold your face before my eyes But it never seems to last So let's go back to Pacific Grove When those monarchs come back home I know I won't make it alone With love and laugh in a tavern When that evening sun goes down Halfway in Pacific Grove At times my mind did wander Like a bird from limb to limb Wake up early but who am I fooling There's no one next to me And there on the misty street that neon light we know Often I've longed for your silhouette Glowing inside that window So let's go back to Pacific Grove When those monarchs come back home I know I won't make it alone We'll love and laugh in a tavern When that evening sun goes down Halfway in 
Sweet. Sweet. That's a great one. Thanks, man. Better than a good one. All right, cool. I'll um, take so that. After you started playing for a few years and you started putting stuff out, when did you feel both like that your career had started and then you were also starting to hit the stride of the music that you wanted to make? Instead of muscling through that you were like finessing and like curating the songs you were writing. Yeah. Well, I always um I kind of always thought about I kind of wrote, I tried to write, um, write, um, write songs that I would, um, would have to, would have to grow into or something. I mean, I'd, so I, I would, um, I'd write ideas in order to push myself to like become them, you know, in that sort of sense. I like that. And then, uh. Like you got to man up to the songs you wrote? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And then a lot, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they're, you're not ready for it. It takes, you have to put them away and then you come back to them. But. Can so, you give me an example? Um, well, let's think about that. Um, yeah. Well, on my first record, um, let's see here. On my first record, um. Uh, there were there was some finger picking songs and there was some uh, and there was also some electric guitar stuff and and I felt I mean those took a while to to write and create it was like about a two or three year sort of process. Gotcha. Um, so during that time I had ideas and I'd be developing them, um, and um, so for when I did a record called Mobile Chateau, which was my which was my third record. That's the first one that I self-produced, mm -hmm. and so some of the songs that were on that, I'd had um, the ideas for a little while, but I just didn't have the right um, production techniques or different things that I wanted to needed to even like hear them back the way that I, 
I needed to to perform them. Yeah. And so uh, also spending a couple years or two records on the road traveling and doing things, then you understand, you know, just how stuff works in a live situation versus studio situation and all those things. Does that matter to you as, I mean, especially with the new art, the new album, uh, Santa Rosa Fangs, Rosa Fangs, where it's like a concept album straight to finish that's mm-hmm. telling us narrative. So obviously, you're, there are things you're thinking about their studio application and their live application. Yeah. Well, when I did this record, um, I worked it up with uh, with uh, my friend Peter, Peter Matthew Bauer and Nick Stumpf. And I think the goal the whole time was to write songs that would just be deliverable really strong live mm-hmm. to where I could go out there with my band and, and just have them be really impactful. Mm. Even more so than other songs where, you know, you're missing the like three guitar parts that are like weaving together or something. Right, right. And when you just have, you know, when you don't have all those things, you're and a lot of times that's fine, you know, but as a when you have the idea you want to deliver it in its entirety. So these ones, for the most part, there was um you know, there it was um they they worked in probably some of the best songs I think live as far as really having a punch to them. Yeah, I feel that at least when I when I play them on this tour and that feels really good because after doing so many records, to feel that to still feel that way, it's it's a great feeling. Do you feel that you pull a little of the punch when you're recording it so that when it comes out live, people are like, "Whoa, this is a whole other experience"? Or do you try and pour as much into recording it as you do into the live show? Hmm. I think the recording stuff is more just like um, it's different because you can, you know, it's it's really hard to capture the the immensity of something on a recording, so you have to capture it. It's more of like I think recordings a lot of times are um, they they're all like your perception of uh, of the way it's sonic perception of it, mm. you know. So if you uh, just because you you play in a room really big and really loud. You can mic it up. Doesn't mean it's gonna sound really big and loud. Sure. So I mean, sometimes you have to make things really small in order to like, you know, a vocal or something, things like that. Have it sit in the mix, where everything else sounds huge, but it's just perspective and of how the track sounds. Um, you know, audio, audio illusion sort of sort of thing. Um, and then performance is key. You know, as far as um, as that as well. So I think you perform it good, but um, yeah, those studio things are are a little. Are a little different than just when you go live. When you go live, you just want to get in there and like, you know, you can fill up a room with the sound, and that's you can you can't ever recreate that on a record, I don't think. So, mm-hmm. um, and also the actual physical vibrations that you're getting from it. Oh, the, the physical too. feeling of yeah, it. Yeah. I love that when you're in a yeah. room and you you can feel the the music like in your body. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, uh, can we hear another song? Sure. Yeah. What do you got for us? This one, um, this one is a song called Sharon, and I'll tell you a story about it. When I wrote this song. Years and years ago, before I'd written this song, I, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and she came over to my house. Her name's Liz. She's married to my drummer now. And at the time, she had a shaved she had a shaved head, and I thought I was I was thought she was pretty cool. Yeah. And she was playing banjo. And then I sat down. I had my guitar, and I was talking to her. And I said, I have this weird, like tick that keeps going on, like circling in my brain, sort of like. Uh, Oliver Sacks sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, then, but I, I hadn't read any of that then, so I just thought I was going crazy. And it was sort of, ran, ran, ran. It was just when I stopped playing music, I stopped doing anything, whatever happened, I had this, you know, hamster wheel of a sound that was going on in my mind. Ran, ran, ran. And then years went by, 
um, well, before that, she had told me, uh, she's like, you should put it in a song. And I was like, well, Uran, Uran, it doesn't make sense. You know, I don't, like, Uran, 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 I don't know. It took me a long time to really, to try to make something work. And I sat down again years later and it turned into like Duran, Duran, Duran or something like that. I was like, I'm, this is dumb. <laughs> then I sat down to do this record. I'd written one song. I remember it well. It was the first song. And then when I went down to write the second song, um, I started playing my guitar again. I started going, Duran, 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 the Sharon, Sharon. And it turned into Sharon. And so Sharon revealed herself to me. And then I made her the centerpiece for the record. And so that's how that came about. It's amazing. That's one of those ones like, you know, I was talking about earlier. Yeah, how, that you like will yourself, you man up, you will yourself yeah, into the song that's in your... A sound that for years and years was just like, phonetically it sounded nice in my head, but I had no idea what it was. And then it turned into something years later. Amazing. So, so that we're going to hear right now? Yeah, this is Sharon. All right, here we go. She's going out tonight. See her aquarium friends. Amongst the buffoons and the bogarts. She's strung out again She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels She don't know if she's living or dying Her pocket's full of pills And she's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cut you like she cut me. Sharon, and sun you raging on the sea. Sharon, 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 Sharon. I've seen you make arrangements With all the lawyers at the bar I know you're going through those changes Yeah, I know you're going through those changes And I've seen you going through those changes Gone, gone, gone And still your daddy pays your rent She knows now what she does She knows not how she don't know if she's living or dying Her bucket's full of pills And she's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cuts you like she cut me Sharon, and send you raging on my scene Sharon, 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 Sharon awesome all right good tune thanks man good rhythm so do you feel now that you've gotten that tune out of your head does it feel better that you can share it with people instead of just having it go around around in your brain? Yeah, that's why it's called Sharon. <laughs> um, so Sharon is the uh, central character in your new album. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a concept album, beautiful story, 
Um, how did it come about? What made you want to do like uh, sort of a uh, like a whole narrative throughout your whole album? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the stories um, come from from my life or people who I know, and I've kind of tied them all together into sort of her and and me sort of narrating it. And I imagined it like with this um, with a you know seeing the movie before um, I'd actually made made the record or made the movie, and so. As um, you know, I thought about kind of these songs sort of um, being the, the score for it, and I'd come off the heels of doing a soundtrack to a documentary called Orange Sunshine. Yeah, and so I was really, um, I was in the in the mode of working with visuals and creating things that were um, hand in hand um, together. They worked symbiotically. So I just um, I took that same concept and decided to make this record, and then as it as it's gone on, then um, the then the story is like revealed more, and and I think eventually I'll turn it into I'm working on writing a screenplay to it now. So kind of doing it reverse. That's awesome. It sort of ties back to the skate videos and the music. And it does, yeah. Tying it all together, the songs and the video and things like that. It does. I think that when I was a kid, I mean, I I wouldn't make my own music for them when I started. But, you know, I'd find my own records that I liked and then I'd get the CD player, the cassette player, and then my VHS player mm. and I'd put the audio into it and then I'd get another VHS player and then oh, dub it cool. over and make my own skate videos. That's how you make your sponsor me videos. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And so now you're just doing it in reverse. I guess so, yeah. Um, and so with the new album, um, it's a very California album. Like, yeah. Do you feel that you've let your Californian like pride and heritage really shine through on this and do you feel that there's a unique story that you're telling about California that that you have that maybe the world doesn't know you know because a lot of times when people think of California they think of like a very specific yeah maybe like a Hollywood story or a San Francisco story or like uh you know uh hiking through the woods in the north uh-huh. are you telling a different type of California story well I mean I'm I'm just speaking from my own experience and people that I've known but I think it's not I mean it is California because this is where I'm from and some of the cities that I name and things like that. But I also think that it can be, you know, it's sort of that place and those memories can exist anywhere, you know. It just ha- mine just happens to be in California and there's the cities that that come of it. And I grew up here, so that's that's my story. But the funny thing is, is that um, the record before this record, I went to Scotland hmm. and I recorded over there. And, um, and I'd grown up listening to a lot of like British folk music and I'd listen to a lot of like Brit pop music, mm. and so, um, so I had these ideas of going and re- like recording up in like Scotland and the Highlands or something, and oh, recording yeah. these like this music. I, I ended up being in Glasgow, and and I'd recorded with um, with uh, some of the members of Bell and Sebastian, who has a big fan wow. of their music. Yeah, I, I love them too, and and um, so it was by it was by no means a. Uh, a traditional uh, Scottish folk record. It was, and I'm I'm happy for that because that's not the kind of record I wanted to make. But I did slide a little bit of those influences in there here and there. But when I was there, I was I was talking with um, Stevie Jackson, and he played guitar on it, and we became close friends. But he was more, you know, into romanticizing the other side of the pond. He was just talking about Graceland and told me more about Elvis than I knew from being over here. <laughs> right. And then I was more into like talking about like going to San- like the apartment where Sandy Denny lived and Incredible String Band and things like that. Yeah. And so, but for that reason, I do know a lot of uh, sort of uh, traditional 
Scottish songs. I, I could play you one of those if you want. I mean, if you want to end on that, we can I can, end on yeah. That. But uh, before we end on that, um, you know, now that you have the album, now that you have this big story, uh, do these characters continue beyond this album? Is it something that you've now cr- brought these people to life through your music and, you know, hopefully through uh, screenplay, things like that? Like, how do you live with these characters that you're, you create? Do you feel responsible for them? to see their lives through or is it just like here's a, a moment in time where you you've opened a window into their world and then you're moving on to look into something else yeah no I think that they'll definitely stick around for a while um, I mean the thing was is that yeah it, it's like I've opened the door opened the door to them and now they're now they're in the room so um, but the interesting thing was um you know about telling a California story, and within within Sharon and within the whole thing, there's a lot of people that I know that are close, and myself as well, that are in, that are inside of inside of these songs. But it took going to, uh, it took going across the sea to like to come home and really appreciate and write a California record. And so sometimes when I sit there in the hills, I still play my Scottish songs when the mist rolls in, just to mess with people. Yeah, that. Well, Green Layer is a good inspiration. Um, before we go, where can people find your music online? Where can people find you? Uh, keep up on your tour and your travels. Yeah, they can just go to um, well, I have Instagram Matt Costa Music, yeah. and then they can go to my website mattcosta.com. Awesome. And uh, yeah, that's those are the, I think those are the main ones. I have Facebook and that kind of stuff too. So whatever, yeah, it all links together. It all links together. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much. Cool. Congratulations on the tour, on the new album. Good yeah. luck on the screenplay. Thank you. And uh, what are you going to take us out with? I'm going to leave you with a, with a, uh, with a California take on a, uh, on a bagpipe tune. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank called. you so much to Gingerbird Records yeah. Studios. We'll see you next time on Snacky Tunes. Matt, take it away. Sweet. Yeah, this one's called Banish Misfortune. Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.